Part One Storybook Smith Hammett shifted into third, and the madly clacking valves of the 1928 Flathead Ford settled into a slightly less distressed tip tapping. Alone in the car, Hammett leaned forward and squinted through the dirty windshield, the visibility made even worse by a throbbing headache and a half-hearted late winter spit of rain. The few random droplets meant the single wiper was only spreading the windscreen dirt into an even and opaque arc of streaked mud. He turned off the wiper motor, pulled a handkerchief from his pocket, and cranked down the driver's window. He leaned forward, head half out of the car, and wiped a circular peephole through the dirty windshield. Hammett and some of the boys had just finished the Saturday shift down at the mill earlier that afternoon. They had piled into the car and driven about 18 miles before stopping just over the bridge so Hammett could duck into the woods. He was back half an hour later and slid behind the wheel, pulling the door shut and turning to the boys in the back seat. They only had gin left in the Tiger, and still two bucks a bottle. Frank... You can get me back from your wages after the show. Hammett pulled the cork and took a long swallow before wiping the bottleneck with his shirt sleeve and passing it to the man riding shotgun, who took a long swig as well. Damn, Smith! Mule piss tastes better than that! How do you know? When was you last drinking mule piss? The boys in the back seat laughed. By the time Hammett had dropped everyone home, the bottle was empty. He knew he could trust them to be sobered up enough for the show in five hours. When it came to playing music, the boys were bona fide professionals. He drove on. Not crazy fast or stupid fast, but not slow either. What about after the show? Whoa. A drink sure goes down good after a hot set. Be a shame to be dry around midnight. A small fist was clenching in the space behind Hammett's eyes, between his temples, the rough liquor announcing the birth of a hangover before he had even had a chance to enjoy feeling drunk. He swerved into the center of the road, talking to himself. Oh, this ain't gonna work at all. At all. I gotta get me a bottle of good medicine. He saw the big white pump of Godfrey's gas station and general store up ahead in the distance. Okay. Hammett took the turn slightly too late, and his subsequent oversteer nearly slid the driver's door of the Ford sideways into a hickory tree 50 yards beyond Charlie Godfrey's store. He pulled the car another yard forward and opened the door, stumbling as he climbed out, swaying as he passed the gas pump and pushed open the door into the grocery store. He looked left and right, eyes adjusting to the light furnished by a few bare bulbs. Two women stood chattering at the end of the shop counter, glancing every few seconds his direction, while a short but stoutly built man in overalls with black greaseback hair and grey eyes watched him steadily from the end of an aisle. Hammett leaned forward and held the counter with both hands to steady himself 
and Charlie turns, taking a pack of cigarettes from the pocket of a blue-checked shirt, knocking the pack against his hand to shake a couple free. He pulled a couple of cigarettes half out of the pack and offered it over the counter. Hey, Smith, smoke? Hammett took one with a shaking hand. Thanks. Smith, you know it ain't none of my business, but I'm going to say it anyhow. You're looking ropey as hell. Aren't you and the boys supposed to be playing over in Rutherford County later tonight? Hammett scrunched his eyes tight shut for a second, trying to force his mouth and brain to work together. Yeah, we're playing. I dropped all the boys home to get some food in their bellies. Look, Charlie, you still got any of that good border hooch? I need something to settle me. Charlie glanced nervously at the customers within earshot. He whispered, hard and firm, chin pressed into his chest, not making eye contact, staring at the spotless counter, hoping the customers couldn't hear. Dang it, Smith, keep your voice down. Come back tomorrow when you had a good night's sleep. A red mist descended on Hammett. You know me, Charlie. Now, goddammit, I ain't leaving here empty-handed. The two women stopped talking, looking at the wall, the floor, anywhere, both clasping their purses close to them. The man with the greased-back hair stepped toward the counter and put a hand on Hammett's shoulder. Now, there'll, there'll be no cussing here in front of ladies, young man. Hammett whirled around and knocked the man's hand from his shoulder while rifling around in his jacket pocket for something. The women gasped in unison, seeing the glint of a blade as Hammett's hand came out of his pocket. Hammett made a stabbing feint at the man, knocking the gumball machine off the counter, the man backing up fast, taking up a position behind the sacks of cabbages and potatoes. Charlie tried to distract Hammett, raising his voice. Oh, put down the knife, Smith. Go on. I mean it. Hammett whirled around, off balance, and saw the two women only a pace away as they tried to scuttle sideways along the aisle between Hammett and the shelves of flour, trying to reach the front door. He swung an arm wildly in an arc, the tip of the blade catching a mother-of-pearl button on the nearest woman's blouse, the other screaming before fainting and crumpling to her knees before falling face-first to the floor. Charles Godfrey roared now, Smith Hammett, drop the knife or I'll drop you! Hammett turns to the counter to see Charlie leveling a shotgun at his chest. The fist between his temples... The room spinning. More red mist. Hammett lunged at the counter, aiming to knock the shotgun out of Charlie's hands. <laughs> Hammett was knocked backward, where he came to sit on one of the bags of potatoes, looking briefly down at the blood pumping from a one-inch hole in his abdomen, before toppling over sideways onto the pinewood floor. The black-haired man came out from his hiding place and stood over the dead man, looking at the blood and then up at Charlie and back down at the floor, shaking his head. Well, well, I never. 
whatever got into the boy. Him with the family and all. Charlie Godfrey, I think you just shot the best dang banjo player in the state of North Carolina. The black-haired man looked up again, but the storekeeper was nowhere to be seen. Charlie? Charlie? Charles Godfrey was already out the back door, lugging a heavy wooden crate of quart bottles to his pickup truck. I'm your host, Brian Halpin, and this is Before We Were White, a podcast exploring the hidden history of Heartland America. Part 2. Fork in the Road It is probably a gross oversimplification to put it this way, but before the 1950s and 1960s countercultural movements, the beatniks, rock and roll, the folk revival, and all the real-world events indelibly etched with that soundtrack, before all that the musical palette of the majority of white Americans could be split into two camps. Those who listened to mostly old-time country or traditional folk music, and those who listened mostly to pop music. These two loosely defined genres corresponded roughly with the division between rural and urban society. In 1950, if you identified as white, lived in a large town or city, and had a fairly decent job, chances are you listened to stuff like The Andrews Sisters, Perry Como, or Bing Crosby. And in 1950, if you identified as white and lived on a farm or in a small town, often making your living through manual labor and blue-collar work, Chances are you listen to stuff by people like Hank Williams, Lefty Frizzell, or Eddie Arnold. There was some crossover by artists like Tennessee Ernie Ford, along with Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash a little bit later. But on the whole, there was a pretty clear division between the tastes of white urban Americans and white rural Americans. Whether urban or rural, much so-called white music was profoundly informed and influenced by the music of black America, but in distinctly different ways via different pathways. We'll take a closer look at some of those connections between the music of black and white America later, but for now, it's enough to say that there were, and still are, 
extremely complex reasons for the differences between the listening habits of urban and rural America. Broadly speaking, urban dwellers had better access to higher education than rural dwellers. Urban dwellers tended to have access to a wider range of job opportunities, a wider array of entertainment and entertainment venues, with more disposable income, better health care, while enjoying better housing. But having said this, the main cause of clear differences in musical taste wasn't just the logical outcome of different lifestyles, nor was it simply the result of grassroots organic development. This situation had been created intentionally over the course of 40 years, between roughly 1920 and 1960, mainly through the actions of record companies. Let's step a bit further back in time for a moment, long before the 1950s and 1960s. Throughout the 1800s and right up to the advent of electrical sound recording in 1925, music had almost always been spread in two ways, either in person or via sheet music. Relatively better educated white city dwellers would have been more likely to purchase sheet music than rural people, who still tended to learn music by ear and from friends and relatives. When purchasing sheet music, urban dwellers would have distinguished between classical, religious, and popular music. They would have been more likely to own larger, more expensive musical instruments, such as pianos. Before the advent of vaudeville during the 1880s and the dawn of commercial sound recording which arrived shortly after vaudeville, the only regular contact point which white town and city dwellers had with black music would have been via traveling blackface minstrel shows, if indeed minstrel shows could even really be called black music. Minstrelsy which was extremely popular throughout the 1800s, was a very American form of entertainment in which mostly white people acted out a range of racist archetypes and stereotypes for the edification of audiences for whom black culture was something by turns subversive, amusing, socially transgressive, titillating, and even exotic. People on the receiving end of such crass caricatures were less amused. The famous abolitionist and social campaigner Frederick Douglass described blackface performers as little more than, quote, the filthy scum of white society who have stolen from us a complexion denied them by nature in which to make money and pander to the corrupt taste of their white fellow citizens." Unquote. By 1900, the decades-long tradition of minstrelsy had been largely supplanted by vaudeville as the most popular form of live musical entertainment for urbanites. Vaudeville was more or less an American version of a traditional English music hall entertainment. Vaudeville shows moved along circuits, basically traveling from town to town and performing in pre-booked theaters, 
much in the way bands go on tour today. Vaudeville had rough enough roots, being a bawdy form of variety show performed in its earliest days in small-town taverns and beer halls, before eventually becoming respectable and moving into larger city centre venues. Respectable is, of course, a relative term. This was a time of strict racial segregation, so there were whites-only theatres and black theatres, the latter being known at the time as the Chitlin Circuit. Still, even the so-called white shows were often produced or performed by recent immigrants from Eastern Europe, particularly Jewish immigrants, who were themselves often looked down upon by respectable white Christian society. For rural people, segregation was far more complex. This was especially true for the white rural poor, who, unlike their urban northern counterparts, had a great deal more interaction with people of color. Lines separating musical genres were certainly much less clear, and racial boundaries marking out which music was appropriate to certain ethnic groups was hazy at best. It is hugely important to understand that prior to black emancipation, southern plantation slavery and the slavery of southern Appalachia were completely different in form and practice, and these differences carried over into the Reconstruction and Jim Crow eras following the Civil War. Plantations of the Deep South, based mainly on the cotton economy, often held dozens, scores, and sometimes even hundreds of slaves, and these unfortunate souls were largely divided into field and domestic labor. Most field slaves had very little regular contact with the broader white society, often living in rows of slave shacks and cabins far from the fancy plantation houses. In southern Appalachia, on the other hand, where the climate and terrain was not conducive to the extensive cultivation of cash crops such as cotton, slaveholders tended to have fewer slaves. Yet, fewer slaves per slaveholder does not mean that slaveholding was not widespread in places like Appalachia. It is one of the great myths of white America that slaveholding was limited to only a tiny, wealthy percent of the population, or that slavery only really affected people in the Deep South. It bears repeating. Slavery was widespread in southern Appalachia, and in some ways, being enslaved in this setting was far worse than being enslaved elsewhere. On large plantations, slaves often, but by no means always, were able to live and work alongside family members. This was rarely the case in southern Appalachia, where slaveholders often held only one or two slaves. In southern Appalachia, slaves were often purchased with the express intent of hiring them out as a way to supplement the slaveholder's income. Slaves might be hired out many times during the year, working in blacksmith's forges, helping as bricklayers, cooks, laundry women, 
or even midwives. In other words, those enslaved in Appalachia were more likely to rub shoulders with a number of people outside the black community. And this is where we get to at least part of exactly how and why the early 20th century musical traditions of rural black and white America were often one in the same. Many, and perhaps most, ethnomusicologists have tended to locate or theorize a white appropriation of traditionally black forms of music during the 19th century, primarily during the years of blackface minstrel shows. In this widely accepted scenario, the first white folks to play black music and black instruments like the banjo were simply those first minstrel show performers adopting the music and instruments they heard black folks playing. And if blackface minstrels were simply performing caricatures of black music they had heard, this invites the question. Where, exactly, did these blackface performers hear this music? Early blackface minstrel show performers like Thomas Dartmouth Rice, born in 1808, otherwise known as Jim Crow Rice, and Daniel Decatur Emmett, born in 1815, were northerners, born in New York and Ohio, respectively. These early minstrel shows were not performed by people who actually lived side by side with people of color, certainly not in the way people of Appalachia lived and worked side by side with them. In order to hear the music of black America, these minstrels would have had to act like proto-ethnomusicologists, seeking out and sitting in on black music and dance sessions, learning by ear or by taking down notes of what they heard. It is not at all clear that either of these northerners did such field research. It is also unclear where Rice would have collected his repertoire, as he seems to have spent very little, if any time, in the deep south or southern Appalachia, in places where the music was a widespread living tradition. Emmett had once travelled with a circus, and it would be tempting to surmise that this is where he first heard African-American music. But, unlike in Victorian England, where circuses often employed people of colour, the same was not true of 19th century America. While both men performed at times in frontier areas like the Ohio River Valley, their bread and butter was earned in the North. Put simply, the evidence for a clear line connecting authentic traditional African-American music to minstrelsy and then minstrelsy inspiring white audience members to take up the banjo and this trend eventually making its way back into the old-time music of eastern Kentucky and eastern Tennessee can seem rather tenuous especially when we remember that many of these old-time mountain fiddlers and banjo players and their families lived in the remotest mountain parts of southern Appalachia, far from the commercial show circuits. Whether it be cooking, fashions in clothing, dancing or music, change tends to come more slowly 
to relatively isolated rural communities. It is the cities and industrial towns, where people from many backgrounds get thrown together, which are usually the hotbeds of musical fusion and innovation. Larger historical events like the Civil War did throw people from both urban and rural backgrounds together, and we know that banjos were a part of that sound of war. So, it is possible that the uptake of the banjo by early mountain musicians came by a combination of things happening outside the hills and hollers. The influence of minstrel shows, family members arriving back from jobs in towns, African-American laborers working on railroads going into the mountains, or soldiers coming back from war. But something here still doesn't quite add up. Early folklorists, song collectors, and field recorders always pointed with great excitement at the antiquity and continuity of musical traditions in remote parts of southern Appalachia. Laments, folk songs, work songs, murder ballads, traveling songs, dance music, gospel songs and spirituals. Why then do many musicologists and folklorists insist on a more recent and complicated external explanation for how banjos ended up in the hands of white mountain folks? Maybe the old mix Americans of Appalachia didn't need external influences like minstrel shows to introduce them to black music or the banjo. Maybe as a profoundly mixed ethnic people, the banjo and other aspects of African music had been part of the culture of mountain folks since long before the age of minstrel shows. And unlike the situation elsewhere, mountain music was held in common by people of all ethnic backgrounds. Among the rural underclasses, in a world where people of every hue and shade were often dirt poor, where life was hard and music was shared, where exactly was the line between a lament, a spiritual, and a blues song? There was no clear line. Just like there was no clear line, between what some people like to call races. The birth of the commercial recording industry happened to coincide with one of the largest inland migrations of human beings in history outside of wartime. And this migration began taking place in about 1910 in America. Between 1910 and 1970, Around 6 million Americans of color moved from the mostly rural South to cities and urban areas to the North and West. Washington, D.C., Chicago, New York, Detroit, Philadelphia, Los Angeles. The reasons for this mass movement were multifold. The hardness of life as sharecroppers, Racism, Jim Crow and segregation, lynchings, 
better opportunities for education and jobs in industries up north? While this great migration has been well documented in terms of its impact on American society in the north, it often goes unremarked that this migration left a gaping demographic hole in the deep south and southern Appalachia. The South went from having 90% of the African-American population of the USA to perhaps half that. Which brings us to an interesting place for considering the music of Appalachia and the South. At the exact moment when the recording industry was being born, as the first song collectors headed into the mountains and swamps and delta lands and hollers, they were entering a landscape only recently emptied of many of its people. In other words, the communities where people sang laments, folk songs, murder ballads, train songs and gospel songs, the communities where people danced to string bands, had suddenly become a whole lot whiter. It is hard to say whether this is part of the reason early field recorders, song collectors and record companies saw the music of Southern Appalachia and the Deep South as mostly the province of white hillbillies. What is certain is that once record companies spotted potential markets or audiences, they worked overtime to cultivate and solidify those markets, to create categories or brands of music, as it were. So if they had a hit with, say, a white guy like Jimmy Rogers, they went back to the well looking for more white guys doing stuff that sounded like Jimmy Rogers. If they had a hit with a black singer like Blind Willie Johnson, they scoured the byways and backroads, looking for other singers of colour who could record similar-sounding music. And eventually, no one remembered that Jimmy Rogers and Blind Willie Johnson had both drawn from a largely common repertoire of songs, styles, and sources. Jimmy sang blues songs, and Blind Willie adapted gospel songs. Both men, and thousands of other men and women like them, drank deep from a river of music flowing from Gaelic Scotland through Ireland, Wales and England, on through Central Europe and Iberia, crossing over the sea to Islamic North Africa, Animist West Africa, Portuguese Southern Africa, and on to the Caribbean and Americas, where this river of sound would wash and swirl over and among indigenous American musical traditions. In the 1920s, hundreds of years of these musical traditions borrowing, bubbling, and intermixing finally bumped up against a temporary but formidable obstacle, an obstacle constructed of commerce and racism. American capitalism and its marketing men had created a fork in the road, a road which had previously been traveled and shared by people of all shades and all ethnicities. 
white folks got funneled onto the fork signposted old-timey or hillbilly music, while black folks were flagged down and diverted onto the fork with a signpost marked race music. The profound irony in all of this is that while record companies were hustling to extract marketable content from rural-based musicians, most working-class rural Americans during the 1920s did not own and couldn't even afford records or record players. Rural working-class America continued to enjoy live music. Any access to recorded music was mostly via wireless telegraphy, or radio as it came to be known. The marketing of recorded music was thus targeted at urban, middle-class, white Americans in those early days. A little later, race records were marketed at working-class, urban, black Americans. Those early days of recorded music coincided with possibly the worst decades ever in the history of American race relations. And this situation meant that most of the white urban middle classes simply did not purchase what was being marketed at the time as race music. The purchase and consumption of black music by urban white Americans only began to find acceptability once it had been put through the treatment. The treatment could take many forms. Sometimes the white middle classes might simply choose to adopt particular black artists, but only if those artists seemed non-threatening and did not appear overtly transgressive of the white Christian social order. Black artists who had paid their dues and earned their reputations in vaudeville or on Broadway or as orchestra leaders were the most likely to be adopted by those with white sensibilities. Fats Waller, Bessie Smith, Louis Armstrong. Black music could also be co-opted and made safe for white consumption simply by having it performed by white folks in a less overtly black style. Eventually, race records, records which had been first recorded by black artists and music originally marketed at an exclusively black audience, was stripped of its edgy authenticity and often raunchy lyrical content, then remarketed to young white consumers under new genre names such as rhythm and blues and later rockabilly and rock and roll. These new genre labels were soon being performed by both black and white artists. This is how we got nightclub songs like Tutti Frutti, its original lyrics about gay sex heavily modified before being published by Art Roop, the Jewish owner of Specialty Records. This is also how we got Elvis Presley singing his ridiculously de-sexed version of Hound Dog in 1956, 
a song originally written in 1952 by the Jewish songwriting team of Leiber and Stoller. Hound Dog was penned specifically for Big Mama Thornton, a growling, cross-dressing black woman who used the song to tell a two-timing man how to get lost. So between 1920 and 1960, the musical map of America had been redrawn along ethnic lines and often watered down, all to suit the money men. Money men who grabbed publishing rights, sucked up royalty earnings, and paid a pittance to artists and performers. Musicians and singers were very much like early contract actors under the Hollywood studio system. Artists had little creative control and would generally sing what the record companies told them to sing. A black artist like Leadbelly, a man who was primarily a folk singer and a balladeer, would only get record company support when he agreed to perform music marketable as black music. And until people like Carl Perkins, Elvis Presley, or Jerry Lee Lewis came along in the mid-1950s, white rural musicians were steered well away from recording the music they had long shared with black America. Part 3. The Real Color of Country Music Anyone who has listened regularly to this podcast will know by now that the American binary division of people into black and white races, as if these terms had any biological basis, is simply ridiculous. The genetic inheritance of all Old mix Americans exists on a spectrum, our skin color being simply an indicator that we might have a few more ancestors from one place than another. Purebred, we ain't. Almost every black presenting American has some non African ancestry, and almost every white presenting American has some non-European ancestry. But having said this, do not be tempted to go straight back to a simplistic, binary, race-based way of thinking when we speak of old mix Americans. Mixed in colonial America did not necessarily mean being part African, part Northern European. Don't get me wrong, there was plenty of African-Euro-American mixing going on. But oftentimes, being enumerated on census forms as a mulatto or a free person of color 
meant something else altogether. For example, a person of dark complexion might have been primarily of indigenous ancestry and simply became assimilated into so-called white society. Indians not living in tribal communities were rarely enumerated as Indians. They were simply absorbed into America's color-based caste system, becoming white, black, or mulatto. This exact same situation was true for other peoples of color who were being assimilated into the dominant white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture. Whether you were a South Asian Indian from Portuguese Goa, a swarthy German gypsy, or a part Jewish, part mestizo person from Dutch Suriname, you were likely to end up designated as either a mulatto or a free person of colour. It is sad, but often the case, that such assimilation into whiteness usually broke the chain of folk memory. Forgetting, in order to become white, became a form of self-preservation. Many families which have long since passed into whiteness still preserve vague snippets of folklore referring to non-white ancestry, but this usually takes the form of a generic claim of having a remote Cherokee grandmother or similar. Yet Appalachia is full of families with indigenous ancestry drawn from a panoply of tribes, from the Pomonke, the Catawba, the Creek, the Choctaw, the Shawnee, the Lenape, even from the Canadian Mi'kmaq people. The American underclasses have always been forced to migrate for one reason or another. American Indians had been turned as well into a roving underclass, but in their own country. Americans will happily recount how their European ancestors travelled thousands of miles by ship, flatboat, mule, or wagon back in the day, but then seem surprised that an indigenous person from Nova Scotia might end up in Tennessee. Once we've accepted that Euro-Americans, African-Americans, and indigenous Americans were on the move and intermixing in colonial and frontier times, We are at the farthest point reached by most Americans when they ponder their roots. The idea of being biracial is forced to make room for the possibility of being triracial. Fine, so dark-complexioned people in America are simply a mix of the black, white, and red races, right? Wrong. There's that silly word, race, again. A word implying that dark-complexioned Americans are simply a mix of two or three races. Yet many frontier-era Americans were extremely brown-looking, while having very little African or indigenous ancestry. What about people descended in part from North African Berbers? Or Portuguese? Southern French, South Asians, 
Menorcans, Turkish, German, French, or British Romany, Sephardic Jewish. All of the ethnic groups just named were present in colonial America, especially along the frontier, where land was cheap, free, or at least contested. The deeper our roots in colonial-era America, the more likely it is that we descend at least in some part from these forgotten peoples. The spectrum of ethnic histories and permutations is vast, and far too interesting to keep in boxes labelled black, white, and red. This wider-lens way of looking at ethnicity instead of race can then be expanded and applied to frontier American culture in general, its food, folklore, and language, and especially its music. Take language. It is common for Appalachians to repeat the claim that they speak Elizabethan English, as if the vocabulary, language, and syntax of Shakespeare was somehow preserved in mountain amber. But this oft-repeated claim of a single source for the Appalachian way of speaking is simply untrue. The English of Shakespeare's time had been put through 150, even 200 years of evolution in eastern North America long before the first English-speaking colonizers ever entered the indigenous lands of Appalachia. What Appalachians do speak is Appalachian American English. This regional dialect does include a few leftovers from Elizabethan English, which have largely fallen into disuse elsewhere, but Appalachian American English has also been influenced and formed from the accents and languages once spoken by a myriad of other peoples who came into those mountains. Gaelic speakers, German speakers, speakers of French, Finnish, Swedish, Dutch, Sinti Romans, Yiddish, Ladino, and Welsh. It goes on and on. This is like saying that rural Appalachians eat either white European food or black African food. Mountain folks of every ethnic background ate stuff like sourdough biscuits with molasses or sawmill gravy, collard greens, possum stew, may apples, dumplings and cornbread. If food needs to be divided in some way, then it is better to divide it into rich people's food or poor people's food. And it is often the same with music. When we try to understand the music of rural America, and Appalachia in particular, it is foolish to think that this music exists in boxes marked black tradition or white tradition. The music Africans brought to the Americas and Appalachia underwent changes there. The same is true for the music brought to America and Appalachia by Europeans. Old-time American music, the folk, gospel, dance, and blues music, which evolved into genres like country, R&B, and rockabilly music, 
has always existed in a cultural space at least as complex as language, food, or ethnic ancestry. Yes, Americans were conditioned since the 1600s to think of their fellow Americans as being either black or white, and this mental conditioning got baked into the early American recording industry. But however hard the record companies tried to stick the music of the Deep South and Southern Appalachia into boxes marked black or white, a number of clues point to a more complex and fascinating story. We've gone around the block a few times here now, trying to illustrate how old-time music, the music which would eventually become country music, wasn't considered white music by the singers and players who first recorded it. Old-time music was just music. Music shared by rural Americans from every ethnic background. As a general rule, the more mixed the community, the richer the available source material. When we spoke about the origin of Appalachian English, we already mentioned that Appalachia was settled by people from a diverse range of cultural backgrounds. Swedes, Finns, English, Welsh, Irish, Scots, Bavarians, Hessians, Prussians, Rhinelanders, Alsatians, Gascons, Basques, French and German-speaking Swiss, Malagasy, Angolans, Senegalese, South Asians, Portuguese and Portuguese Jews, British, German and French, Romani, Menorcans, Berbers, Greeks, Turks, Spaniards, Poles, Bohemians and Dutch, among others. And this isn't even taking into account the vast number of indigenous Americans being displaced from the original 13 colonies, peoples who also went into the mountains to escape the American project. Modern Americans always forget that it wasn't just so-called white settlers who were intruding on Shawnee, Yuchi Creek, Choctaw, or Cherokee lands in Appalachia. Eastern tribes like the Tuscarora, Catawba, Saponi, Lenape, and Pamunkey had been shattered by European colonialism, and remnants of these peoples were just as likely as white folks to end up seeking a safe haven in the mountains, far away from racists and their racist laws. So when we try to imagine places like the Deep South and Southern Appalachia in times past, should we really be thinking of a simplistic scenario of black and white musical traditions bumping up against one another? Do we picture a white person listening to the music being played in a black sharecropper's cabin? Maybe we see a black person standing outside a white church listening to shape note gospel singing. Perhaps we think of Bill Monroe, the father of bluegrass music, getting tips and inspiration from black musicians like Arnold Schultz, and we assume that Monroe only grew up with white music while Arnold Schultz was playing within a black tradition. And once again, we are always back imagining separate races, 
living separate lives, reaching tentatively across the racial boundary, swapping ideas, but living in separate worlds. And sure, these types of cultural exchange were no doubt common during the late 1800s and early 1900s. Yet when we step outside the binary racial paradigm, we find Choctaw groups like Big Chief Henry's Indian String Band playing something recognizable as Western swing music well before it was recorded and made famous by white artists like Bob Wills. We have Fiddlin' John Sawyer, who is equally adept on the banjo, and his neighbor and contemporary Jeff Gibson, a half-Cherokee fiddle player. And if Native Americans were such an early part of the history of old-time music, the question arises, who exactly was borrowing which bits from who? We're coming now to the end of part one of this episode, so let's end with a question we will try to answer in part two. What if the melding of so-called black and white musical traditions was already taking place way, way farther back in time than we imagine. Way back before the 1800s and the age of minstrel shows. Even as far back as the 1500s and 1600s. What if the music of so-called black and white Appalachia is so intertwined and intermixed because the Appalachian people themselves have been a deeply mixed ethnic people for centuries. This could get overcomplicated really quickly. So, in the next episode, we're going to narrow our focus right down and look at just one musical instrument and one very specific but largely forgotten group of people who helped colonize the American frontier. This will help us to better understand the mixed ethnic nature of colonial America and show us why looking at music and American history in general through a binary race lens ends up clouding our vision. Remember the brown people of Appalachia mentioned earlier? Almost nothing in American history is as simple as we imagine. In part two of Pre-Deliverance, we're going to offer an alternative look at Appalachian culture. We will try to show, once and for all, why so many dark-complected mountain folks share family lore insisting on Portuguese ancestry. We're going to do this by talking about that ultimate icon, of Appalachian music, the banjo. And as we track the history of the banjo, we will try to find out whether some of the earliest non-African players of the banjo were actually multi-ethnic families with Jewish ancestry. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for part two when we go on the hunt for hillbilly Jews.
Thank you for listening to episode 15 of Before We Were White, written and produced by me, Brian Halpin. Main theme performed this episode by Ephraim McDowell on fretless banjo and Ray Cohen on fiddle. I'm incredibly lucky to have musician friends always willing to help with this project, and thanks are hardly sufficient. This autumn also marks the very first time that we can say that our generous patrons were directly responsible for keeping the wheels on this show. The upgrading and replacement of audio recording equipment was made possible by your incredible support. I cannot begin to express how humbling it is to have people like your good selves out there. Heartfelt thanks to Elizabeth, Karen, Kelly, John, Paula, Mike, Jeff, James, Sandy, Pamela, Sarah, Patrick, Tara, and Michelle at Buy Me a Coffee. A special thanks also goes out to my stalwart cyberspace friends, Leanne and Jane. Until next episode, wishing every one of you the very, very best this holiday season. <laughs>